Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. Two years ago, on January 6th, following the defeat of President Donald Trump, a mob of his supporters attacked the U.S. Capitol building in Washington, D.C. They sought to keep Trump in power by preventing Congress from formalizing the election process. The House Select Committee investigating the incident blamed Trump for promoting the big lie, a gross distortion of the truth used by many strongmen leaders of the fascist persuasion. But is it this simple? A politician promoting a false narrative that weaponizes his supporters to storm the Capitol? Our guest today has a different spin on this situation. Let's discuss. Well, warm, warm greetings, everybody. Got a special guest today, uh, Andrew Conright, and or Anthony Conright. I'm sorry, not An Andrew, A Anthony okay. Conright. And uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation. You're a, a pretty prolific uh, journalist. I can't believe all of the, uh, for being a young man, you published in Mother Jones, uh, The Nation, New Republic, Ed Week, Huffington Post, and more. <laughs> So is that what you're doing full-time, making a living with your journalism? Or are you teaching also, or? Well, I'm not I'm not teaching. I'm making uh, almost a living. Uh, if I had to, if, if I solely relied on this, I would certainly be uh, six feet under, um, or at least, you know, like one. Um, no, my, um, my wife, I'm actually glad you, you asked me this, because this is the first time I can actually kind of, I could say this on a podcast. My wife, um, about three years ago, when I was working in education, said, hey, um, why don't you quit your job? You want to write this book, right? So you should just quit your job and write the book. And, um, you know, without her, uh, I just I, I just don't think I'd be here right right now. Or if I if I found a way to be here, I would certainly be crazy. Um, I'd be working myself to the bone, you know, and so um, I'm very fortunate to have to have a wife that um, believed in me enough to tell me to pursue a dream. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, nice. that's great. That's great. So and how's your novel coming? You're gonna you were working on a novel. Tell me about that. Uh, speak, uh, uh, speak blackness, I believe. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the name of it um, right now. So it's not out yet. It's it's um, I have a draft of it finished. Um, I'm actually working through um, getting um, a publisher for it, which is a whole other story and learning journey. Um, but yeah, that novel um, has, has been kind of uh, on my mind since I was probably about 27 or 28. And um, I started kind of committing myself to writing it. I lived in India for a year and I started really focusing on it then. And then when I came back to the States, took a little break. And then when I moved to New York, I said, you know what, I'm going to commit myself to writing this novel. And then I finally did uh, once my wife told me to do it. <laughs> yeah, you got to peace. Peace in the home is important. So uh, you are a writer for Mother Jones, uh, a magazine and in that magazine you had a article uh that was american myths 
made of white grievance and the January 6th big lie. And Greg and I, I sent this to Greg and we both read it and, you know, argued about it. And, and I just <clears throat> thought I would, you know, I, it's an interesting uh, spin. We're two years into this uh, insurgency. Right. And I think we're just trying <clears throat> to make sense of what, what happened and is this unique mm -hmm. to the United States? Is this a pattern that goes through our history, through other countries' history? And your spin on it mm -hmm. was different than any other person that I, I've read. Um, give me a give me a summary, and we'll we'll dig into your perception of the January sixth insurgency, where where it came from. Yeah. So. Um... For me, I was kind of thinking, um, I can't, well, first of all, it, during a, um, let me actually take, go even take a step back further. So um, kind of it, the, that article was actually part of a larger idea I had at the time, but, you know, word count and um, things like that. And just kind of for, um uh being concise and whatnot i had to kind of remove uh, a lot of it out and it, it was part of this my questioning of where does the violence like the the shooting in buffalo and january 6 come from now at the time uh the popular narrative in the media was oh well they believe in uh great uh, there are white people who believe in that they're being being replaced and um, you saw this with the Buffalo shooter who referenced it in his writing um, about the shooting. And um, I was really consumed with that idea. And I was like, what? And I just kept asking myself, what does it mean to believe you're being replaced? Now, it just so happens, as I was contemplating this question, I was writing a piece that critiqued um, sort of this this anti-race, anti-racism. So the idea that if people just didn't believe that, you know, for example, if Black people just stopped saying they were Black or if we just stopped believing in race, racism would end. And so it just so happened these ideas were kind of in my mind at the same time. And I started thinking, okay, well, what would it mean to be... Uh, to, to fear you're being replaced if there's no such thing as the, the white race, right? So how, how could those two ideas kind of live together? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought about it, I was like, I kind of came to the conclusion that things like the great replace, the great replacement fear, or even lies about um, voter fraud doesn't necessarily lead people to engage in the types of violent acts we see from white supremacists. So there must be something else underneath the, the, the surface. And the, the larger idea that I'm kind of working on now um, to, to prepare for hopefully something that I can publish about um, George Floyd's uh, murder is that that violence doesn't need an inciting incident like a big lie or replacement theory. It's actually how um, the country sort of establishes its identity, if that makes sense. Right. And so that's kind of where the piece came from. And so I was just thinking, so I was looking like, well, why are there so many um, white people at this Capitol 
um, if the lies about voter fraud. Right, right. Why is it such a singular demographic? And that was the question that kind of led to the piece. And in the when I do these podcasts, I do an introduction, and and you know we're two years from two years and a couple of days from the January sixth, and mm-hmm. um, you know the committee has a hearing and they're promoting you know the mm-hmm. big lie it's just as simple as that you got this mm-hmm. bad guy that's right. a little, little off plum and narcissistic and has all mm-hmm. sorts of personality mm-hmm. problems and he is feeding this sort of simple propaganda technique that a lot of these fascist leaders have, have done and it's as simple mm-hmm. as that and um right. you know what i thought was so interesting about your article is you turned me on to pape uh, the chicago um the chicago fellow mm-hmm. uh he's mm-hmm. an academic at the university of chicago looked at mm-hmm. uh, all of the people that came to the capitol and then he looked at the people that went into the capitol and were arrested and compared mm-hmm. the january 6 group to the previous groups of other uh, extremists that we've had from 2015 to 2020, so a five-year period. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what was fascinating about that is, and I have a couple of charts here, maybe I could put up um, when we when we chat about this, but this is from his article. In the right. earlier right. group, they were the Proud Boys. They were the, um, you know... Uh, they were they were these kind of ins- the group of people. Actually, we had Andy Campbell on talking about the Proud Boys and the different. Um, mm-hmm. These weren't these were ten percent of this population was this kind of radical known militias. Um, mm-hmm. And you look at the other the other issues where the older the the younger uh, or the earlier group of um, protesters were young. These people mm-hmm. were my neighbors, they're me, you know, they're just these middle-aged white guys. Mm -hmm. They're not necessarily unemployed. They have good jobs. They Mm -hmm. come from county. They're not just all these red, you know, red counties. They half of them come from counties where, uh, where Biden was elected. And the, but the, the one issue that he seemed to put a lot of credence on is this idea that they come from counties where the white population is diminishing in that county. So there's mm-hmm. something that's kind of triggering. Why are these relatively normal neighbors jumping vans and, and taking off and, and being so violent? And, uh, you know, to a, to a certain extent, I guess that is a little bit of a replacement, th- great replacement theory, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Right, Exactly. And, and so, which is interesting because you, if, if given the demographics, you're, in, you're, you're employed and some of these people had like well-paying, well-established jobs or even in careers, um, they own property, right? So um, why, even in a demographic change, you haven't lost your job, you're not disenfranchised, even if you were in the, at the Capitol and just chose not to vote. Um, uh, so what, what exactly is it, you know? And, um, and so the, the idea that, well, 
there's a demographic change. And when I saw Pape, and oh my God, Professor Pape is amazing, by the way. I don't know if you'll ever hear this, but thank you so much. If you do, Professor, I just really appreciate your you and your team's generosity with explaining things to me uh, because I asked a lot of silly, stupid questions. But um, thank you. So um, that study was was really fascinating to me because it kind of alluded to, well, the actual, whatever Trump's narrative is about the uh, election um, isn't as strong as the belief that somebody is um, experiencing a demographic change, which, um, you know, it's all, was also sort of propagated on Fox News with um, Tucker Carlson saying, you know, the, the, and the, the, here's the key, that not only is there a demographic change, but it's being purposely driven by Democrats. Democrats, right, right. Oh. Um, and so, yeah, so that to me, I was saying, oh, okay, well, that must be the thing. It, it, it must not actually be this lie. I'm not saying that um, the the lie is irrelevant or indefinitely. I'm not trying to say that Donald Trump did not lie about election fraud. He certainly lied, and he's certainly all of the things that we know him to be. And there's something about this that we haven't really talked about as a country that we got to figure out. Greg, what are your thoughts? Well, I think there's a lot of things that get uh, mixed up in this. Uh, the question of who supports Trump is one issue. Another question, mm -hmm. and maybe it's an entirely different question, is who supported that uh, event on January 6th. I mean, mm -hmm. on the face of it, you could argue that who is in a position to get to D.C. and participate in this big rally and then hang around uh, and not worry about the consequences, you know, for the rest of the day if you attack the the uh, the Capitol? And it may well be uh, approximate explanation could possibly be that they had the means, as as the study points out, they're better off. They're better off than mm -hmm. what they've seen in earlier insurgencies or earlier confrontations. So as a, there's a tendency, especially when it's politicized, the way this has been politicized, to rush into an explanation. What I liked about the article so much was that, your article, is that it, it takes on the media. The media likes a simple explanation like the big lie. Mm -hmm. And you're mm -hmm. exactly right. There's an element of truth to that. There is certainly an element. Of truth. But that's just a mm -hmm. glib explanation. The media likes it. And, and people fall into it too quickly. And they don't do the further analysis that you have done and, and the, uh, the uh, professor you cite has done. But I think all in all, we've got to do a little bit of cross-cultural work, too. I think... You do the important thing in re-injecting race into this. There's no event in America that doesn't involve or engage race. Mm -hmm. And anyone who leaves that out of the picture is leaving a big part of the picture out. On the other hand, I think if you look at Bolsonaro in Brazil, which also has a racial component to it because of mm -hmm. Brazilian racism, you look at Maloney in Italy, you look at Urban in Hungary, you see that there's a lot of things coming together and there's a history to the development of these movements and mm -hmm. how they jump off. And uh, the mm -hmm. fact that Bolsonaro was a, uh, uh, the, the situation in Brazil was a copycat of this January 6th thing, I think is fascinating. Mm -hmm. And there's a mm -hmm. vast difference in the way that the media and the political forces involved engaged Lula in the case of Brazil and the Democrats in this case reacted to it. Lula's going mm -hmm. after. 
the people that that perhaps were involved. So um, mm -hmm. I think we need to look at, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are, because I know you've studied this. What do you think the Trump phenomena really is? Uh, apart from just this incident, how do you view the Trump phenomena? You've had a chance to look at and study it. Where's it Yeah, coming? so... Uh, it, I think there are a couple of I think there are a couple of things. I think I think at its I think at its core it represents the um sort of patriarchal male centric unfettered capitalistic violent um culture that is America. Like I think when it, when people say Trump isn't America, I'm like no, actually this he like is America. If there was Trump is literally like a American corporate form. Like that is Donald Trump. And I, and, and I know it's hard for us to say that because we want to believe what we, you know, where we are better, but we're, we're really not. And, um, and so I think he, he has appeal to a lot of people because he said, instead of, let's say a, a Democrat might say, um, okay, well, uh, they'll use sort of hope right they'll 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 use well we're kind of always on the verge of this brighter horizon kind of rhetoric right and donald trump says no i cheat the system don't you want to cheat the system too that's in 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 this and so in a sense um as they say he in some aspects keeps it real so he's i don't want to pay why would i pay my taxes what like and so democrats are like look at this he is, you know, not paying his taxes and he's sleeping with a prostitute and doing all these things. And Donald Trump is like, well, yeah, of course I sleep with prostitutes and have multiple wives and cheat on my taxes. Like, why are you doing those things? And right. so that, and, and so there's no, there's very little. Um, so the, the, the Democrats, their rhetoric is one that is sort of unachievable by the actual members of the party. You can never... No Democrat can ever live up to the the its its own rhetoric, right? But if you're a Republican, it's very easy to live up to your rhetoric. And so John, Donald Trump comes in, and he can live, he can fully embrace, espouse the 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 sort of conservative ideas and live them as fully as possible, and it's attractive, you know. But of course, if it were Barack Obama, that would not fly. Right. If it were Herschel Walker, even though he got a lot of votes in Georgia, there's no way he could ever be elected president of the United States. And so I think um, Trump's appeal is that they actually see him as a, as America, and Democrats don't want to accept that. And I think part of the problem is is the media. You know, I right? Mean, you know, obviously, on one side, you could see Tucker Carlson and his you know mm -hmm. his influence. You know, it's mm -hmm. not a it it's 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 not an accident that uh, Stephen Miller and um, Steve Bannon are uh, uh, consulting with Bolsonaro in Florida are are literally right at his consultants, and that all this comes from the kind of the French gay poet, the the great replacement theory that was Bannon's hero. That they're just gonna mm -hmm. they're 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 gonna come here. They're gonna have babies. They're gonna be more of them than you. They're gonna then vote out all of your rights and and take all of your money away from you, which is a pretty common you know. That's just a Reagan, uh, the welfare queen, and the Cadillac uh, 
right. revisited, revisited. But uh, take, for example, I loved your essay on the unbearable vulnerability of being uh, of being black uh, in Huffington Post, where you're talking about you know, sort of the power of the police at times to have more control mm -hmm. and more arbitration in your lives than you would like in the Freddie Gray mm -hmm. situation. And I was, mm -hmm. as you were, before you came on, Greg and I were chatting about the Freddie Gray situation. I I have a lot of uh, family members that are law enforcement. I've gone back and forth arguing mm -hmm. with them about, about what happened. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the media was, well, you know, he had his hands up and they shot him and this is a bad cop and, you know, as simple as a bad cop. Actually, the right. better story isn't that he was a bad cop. He, in many sense, I think he was probably, you know, if you somewhat justified in responding uh, as he did. It's what is, what was Ferguson? Ferguson was a horrible place for black people to live the schools were horrible the you know the first thing his mom said after he died was but he graduated from high school because nobody graduates from high school there that the number of civil fines per person in that community was like almost two thousand dollars fines own per person the whole environment was horrible a horrible environment mm -hmm. caused by a variety of things. And yet the sort of the simplistic thing of this was a, an event between a bad policeman and a young black man is, is that's not the story. H high unemployment, mm -hmm. uh, taxes going mm -hmm. to the wealthy and not to the, you know, not to the citizens. Uh, um, just the intolerance of the living situation there. Um, that was the story to me. And that's a systemic issue. Right. I, I don't know. What right. do you think? Am I crazy? No, I think you're right. It's 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 not a, a policeman in this black kid. It's 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 blackness meeting policing and policing meeting blackness. Right. And so I think a lot of the the, the things with um, policing and how we talk about things, it's easy. It's easier to talk about something when you know when you can um, create a bad guy when you can create this easy solution to fit this sort of uh, idea of a, of a narrative arc, right? So there was this bad thing that happened and it caused this. And to resolve it, we, you know, have the solution and we implement it. So with the big lie, it's, well, we tell the truth. We give evidence that there wasn't voter fraud. Um, with policing, um, it, it is, oh, okay, if the cops had a video camera, then they'll be uh, more aware, they'll, they'll they will know they are being watched, and will be more likely to show restraint. Well, that assumes that, that um, the murder of uh, unarmed Black people won't become this sort of genre of short documentaries, you know, like, um, and so I think it's, it's, we have to rethink things structurally, but it's extremely difficult to do that. Correct. It's Correct. really hard to rethink policing because we're all, um, conditioned and, um, sort of adjusted to hating criminals and fearing crime and crime is scary and it sucks. Like no one wants to be a victim of a crime. So, um, 
it's easier to say, well, this bad cop in particular, or even this, you know, well, this white racist cop did a thing. And it's, and then we kind of can find a bad guy out of one moment versus thinking about policing um, as a whole. And so same thing with January 6th. It's much easier to say, well, the problem is the big lie and the electors. And I was like, well, what if actual, like the way we execute democracy in this country is unethical? What if electoral college is unethical? What if all of these things themselves are problematic and we just got rid of them? But that's scary. That's a harder conversation to have. Absolutely. And and there is some truth to policing needing reform. I mean, in Pape's review, right. didn't he say 20% of all of the people at the Capitol were either retired uh, military or policemen or somehow actively involved with law enforcement and so i you know there is a tendency for some people to be attracted to that that maybe we well, need more let, monitoring let me, bounce, let me pounce on the media again because uh look uh these these notions of, of of criminalizing black people in people's minds they don't come from nowhere they come from right. a media that sensationalizes crime the vast, vast right. majority of black people, Latin people, white people, people in America are not criminals. The vast, right. vast majority. So there's no basis for for these ideas or attitudes to be to be uh, uh, to expand and grow the way they have, except for a media that sensationalizes crime day in and day out. I, I can speak for people I know. They watch the CBS, NBC, ABC, mm -hmm. Evening News. They think that all crime is black. They think that all black people right. are criminals. Where does this come from? It mm -hmm. comes from a media that sensationalizes. It doesn't come from any reality. Right. Well, I think capitalism is easy to fuel through the lens of anti-blackness. So if you um if you want someone you want to get people to buy more guns well you show them black people committing crimes and but then express the need to buy guns to protect your property you want to um increase uh in you want to pass laws uh, about drugs or whatever it is we'll show black people using drugs and so the like capitalism is built sort of off blackness being a pathology and so I think that's why it's it's sort of it, not that not that it makes sense in a right way, but it makes sense that we see these things because that's what fuels um, capitalism, and we are a capitalistic society. So everything kind of goes back to you know the the money. Well, I think that's why that's also why liberals like the big lie so much. I mean, they like mm -hmm. that kind of explanation. They like mm -hmm. uh, even to be frank, even an explanation that just says, "Well, they're all all the Trump followers are racist." They like that kind of explanation because they can say, "But I'm not one of those," and then they escape right. the very realities that that Pat just ran through in regard to St. Louis, East St. Louis, and Ferguson, that area where where black people their lives are just economically, physically, materially materially denied. And those, mm -hmm. those are the kind of violences. I got to say, I, when I watched your MSNBC uh, uh, interview, I thought it was very, very good. I was kind of shocked by the uh, African-American representative who was speaking about the civil mm -hmm. rights movement and violence. And he said, oh, oh, you know, civil rights obeyed all the laws. We, 
and no one took him to task. It's just not true. I mean, everything about right. the civil rights movement was de de defying the laws of the time. And to say that right. and, and not be taken up was just shocking to me. I think we, we, we don't understand or we don't uh, appreciate how America is a violent country. It's not just January 6th. By, by all this talk about January 6th, in a way, distracts from the incredible violence that exists in this country every day and has throughout its history. Mm -hmm. And so it's, right. it's something that we really have to get back to giving people an understanding of that. Right. Yeah, you're, you're uh, you know, America founded on slavery, had a civil war, Lincoln fleed, freed the slaves. Um, <laughs> now everything's fine. And, uh, right. you know, and we don't and, and that's that's why I keep picking your articles up because I've been I've been it's so much fun reading your articles. You I just you're just a good writer. So it's your. Uh, oh, thank you. Article on Juneteenth. Uh, oh, and the problem with American freedom. It reminds me of kind of a, a, a cliff note version of uh, slavery by another name by Blackman, which is this. Mm -hmm. This idea that after uh, there was a short period of time after the Civil War where actually there was some representation and things did seem like it was going OK. And then mm -hmm. it just went south. Uh, well, that's not a pun, but it, it went poorly. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, part of this was the Black Codes. And you mentioned that in your, your article that. The black codes, if you were because black people are are can be lazy and idle, we need to do something about that. So if you if you're don't can't prove that you have money or can't prove that you have a job, then you become incarcerated and forced to work in these uh worse than slave conditions. And it forced all of these slaves that couldn't really leave the plantation because for fear of they needed the protection. And this went on for years and years. And speaking of capitalism, this is like a capitalism's dream. I mean, you've got this labor market; it's free to you. And and um, I don't know. That's I think that's the that's a that's a big story that we don't really talk about in our our history much. You know. That went on to the I appreciate you pulling up that piece that I, I appreciate you pulling up that piece because um, that that piece was actually sort of the um, starting point that led me to um, now being able to write with Mother Jones and um, that that piece is sort of frames my thinking around that's kind of present in a lot of my my writing and it which is essentially slavery never really ended and that to be like to be black means something to be white like means something and we tend to as you guys are kind of really uh, doing a great job of talking through is we romanticize this this period that um has defined our country since it came into existence. And so, um, you know, like after, you know, what does it mean to be emancipated? What does it mean to be free? And I think the uh, right after emancipation, which uh, I'm pretty sure it's in the article, but in Galveston, 
people say, well, Juneteenth started um, because uh, that's when the last slaves were free, which not, it's like just not even true. Just his, his, as a historical fact, it's a good story. True. It's a good story. Yeah. <laughs> like there was still slavery um, in Kansas and and uh, and in another state. And I can't I can't remember what it was, but um, the 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 point is well. Um, you know, right after emancipation, I in Galveston, I'm pretty sure it's like the next day after that order is given, there's a newspaper article and it's just complaints about um, newly freed slaves. I mean, a, a two days free, like not working. And so then <laughs> the order, so then there's another order that um, was, well, you know, they need to go back to the, the plantation. But of course, who wants to go? Well, I shouldn't say that. There were actual free um, slaves who wanted to go back to their plantation. And I know a lot of people were like, well, they have a, you know, a, a white person's mindset or, a, in, you know, a whatever mindset. But you have to think about it as they would have understood it, not in this romantic lens as we understand it like some and for for some um enslaved black people like their um the plantation owner was kind of their their family as they understood it and articulated and if you go back and actually read um accounts of um newly freed slaves talking about emancipation like receiving the news um, of the Emanci of the Emancipation Proclamation, um, you'll you'll hear them like talk about. Well, I I cried. I didn't want to leave, but I had to leave. And of course, there are accounts of um, hearing the news and just the entire just um, the in the the enslaved population on the plantation just bolting it, just running to the hills. And in some cases, some were you know massacred and whatnot. But the point is, well. Okay, so after emancipation, well, if Amer if everything, if if there's not this structural sort of sense of anti-blackness, well, why were free slaves massacred after the Emancipation Proclamation? And why then was there a need to throw them all in jail? If and so like, and if that existed, what did we what what happened to it? Where did it go? And so I think it rears his head in things like January 6th. Right. Yeah, I, I um, we've had Gerald Horn on a couple of times to our podcast, and he's not a big Juneteenth fan for that very reason. It just it just yeah. it puts forth this narrative that just doesn't deal with the you know the 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 problem, the lives of right. black people after the Civil War during the period of time when mm -hmm. they were round up and involuntarily put into servitude in mm -hmm. situations that were right. crueler because if you died well there's more where that came from you know whereas if you right you know that it, it was a, a very very ugly part of our part of our past and i'm not sure i i see it talked about much it's it's a better story if you will that uh, after the civil war of how we treated that with the new our laws and so forth so i don't know but it's the, right it, it's right. the same thing you know you got you look at these guys they're on the stoop drinking 40s you know they're just screwing around they're not right. and they're you know they're right. just, 
You know, they're, all they want to do is just have sex and and, they're, and do drugs. And, you know, oh, my God, you got to do something about this. That's the same exact. Right. That's black code personified. Right. You know? Right. I mean, and you would think, well, yeah, I wouldn't want to work either. Yeah, I would want to drink a 40 and smoke some weed and have sex because I have not been able to do those things <laughs> my entire life. Yeah, it would be nice to not work and have a vacation, you know, like. So it's, you know, it's sensible, except for it's just that when black people do it, then it's a, it's a, it's a pathology, but kind of to your point, I think we're, we really are, we need a narrative arc as a way to um, protect ourselves from having to interrogate larger, larger problems. And to be honest, the way um, our political process works, um, it's easier to, build an enemy in a way that doesn't split the vote and that's essentially kind of the you know american project and um then and, you know one of the things my next piece is um kind of about that process of uh sort of american politics being demarcated by attitudes of uh on uh black people so pro-slavery anti-slavery um pro uh, enfranchisement, anti-enfranchisement, and all these things. And so, um, you know, it's it's easier for Democrats to say, well, you know, Republicans are racist, or you know, like there are only only black people are victims of police violence, and only white officers who are racist commit acts of police violence. Because then you don't have to talk about structures um, as a whole, and which really robs us of an opportunity to be. Um, I'm not in a romantic political sense, but revolutionary. Greg, speaking of that, um, talk about "Let Them Die." Your article that you published in Marxist Leninist today. It's a short article, but it's it's exactly what you're talking about. Just summarize me, that article. Let me, let me let me pose a question, which will include that 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 matter. But how do we how do we get back, or how do we get on with the business of of addressing? inequality with regard to black people black men and women the the realities are they mm. die much sooner than white people do they mm. they 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 don't have the wealth i mean there's virtually no wealth in the black community mm. you know that's 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 an exaggeration mm. on average there's no wealth because there's a huge number of black people that have no wealth and then there's there are some privileged more privileged black people but you look at the inequalities that have been existed in america and still exist in america and the Democrats gave up affirmative action in 1975, 76. Mm. Yeah, they gave it about about then. So there's no mm. mechanism, no advocacy for rectifying those issues. Those strike me as the central issues that America faces in terms of race. Mm. The other issues mm. are, are, of course, important uh, about the language people use, the the uh, violence mm. of the police, et cetera, et cetera. They're all important. Mm. But that's mm. the fundamental question that black people face. It's how, you know, the mm. old Nina Simone thing, you don't have to live next to me, just give me my equality. And that's what <laughs> black people right. need right. is that kind of economic, fundamental economic equality. Who's addressing that? I mean, who is addressing that? And how do you see that being addressed going forward? Where do we get? Well, I would think of it. So there's this kind of, there's this idea of, um, uh, it's called perfecting slavery. 
and in the idea is that slavery is perfected when the slave accepts its um being as a slave and then wishes for um freedom and the wish for and sort of vice versa the wish for freedom um is the perfection of slavery because by wishing for freedom you're acknowledging you are a slave right and then the, the other side the other element to that is whose freedom are you wishing for right or what what, what type of freedom project do you desire so a more concrete example um to not sound so theoretical or heady is that if you were born a slave and you are raised a slave and you're an adult you your idea of freedom is your enslaver that's that's the like do you you know what it would mean not to be free because you know you see what freedom is within your enslaver right you have no idea what freedom is outside of a slavery context and you don't know what freedom is outside of the people who are holding you in bondage who are free right mm -hmm. so what that does though is it creates a problem so i now want the same freedoms as my uh, enslaver i want um i want kind of to what you're saying i i, I want wealth I want money. I want all. The, I want land ownership. I want all these things. But what what you skip though is questioning whether or not those things are ethical. What if property ownership is inherently um, unethical? What if the way we build wealth in America? What if those pathways are um, not ethical? You know mechanisms. And so I think the problem is. Until we start there, until we say, what if, at, on the, in sort of the extreme question, what if there's a, what if building wealth, what if holding wealth, what if owning wealth or, or uh, obtaining it, like, what if that's not an ethical pursuit? Then let's say we go, okay, it is an ethical pursuit. Well, how can we make it the most ethical pursuit possible? Then I think we can really figure out how black people are participants in that project because there's no way to to kind of get to the equality we've all we kind of seek um, as liberals because um it's an not an ethical pursuit and when you have that black people are always going to be the commodity and so we'll never be able to get to the wealth building we need if we don't question the, the, our fundamental beliefs about wealth and all those things. That makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. I I have the I was an educator for a lot of my career and um, worked partially in a very affluent district, kind of like a Sausalito. You mm -hmm. think of uh, San Francisco. This is a mm -hmm. Sausalito. A lot of attorneys, lawyers. Mm -hmm. Wonder, wonderful school district. Uh, everybody went to college. It was, um, it still is a good school district, great school district. And uh, I then worked the last part of my career in Tacoma, which is, it has high poverty. And um, mm -hmm. one, some of my high schools have 80% free and reduced lunch, you know, uh, just, just, mm -hmm. you know, remarkable poverty. 
And one of my favorite stories I would tell when I'm at my cocktail party at my old, very affluent white uh, with my friends, all great people, mm -hmm. is I tell a story of uh, doing a school board presentation where we were taking freshmen from Tacoma to the, the Science Center in Seattle, which is 35 miles away. And as they were doing mm -hmm. this special trip of these kids on the bus going to the, the Science Center, the, the principal asked the 13 students on the bus, um, how many of you have been to the Science Center? And of the 13 students, 12 had never even been to Seattle. These are, these are freshmen, mm -hmm. 14, 15 year old kids. Mm -hmm. And you know, my friends can't comprehend that. They're, they, you know, it'd be like, who hasn't been to Europe? Who hasn't skied in Aspen? Who hasn't, mm -hmm. you know, they don't realize that the world that is just 10 minutes away from them has such poverty and restriction in in the lifestyle that a 14-year-old would not have driven 30 miles to Seattle, to Seattle, not mm -hmm. to the Science Center, to Seattle. And you know, that's right, when right. that's you know, you, that that's what you're talking about. That that that's a bigger issue than a cop pulling over a bunch of guys, you know, for whatever, you know, having their plates off on their car or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's it's a systemic issue built into the system. And no one really talks about that. They well, they do talk about it, but they don't talk about it correctly. I, I don't know. Right. Well, no, to your point, like the, our conversations are, it's, it's, it's because it's hard to think about ending your, your world. Like, I don't, I don't mean it apocalyptically, but okay. I'll, here's an analogy. Well, it's not, some might say it's a ruse and it, and it sort of is, but I think if people can bear with me, I think how we all can imagine and know um, what the South thought about ending slavery would do to their, they say, you are destroying our way of life. So for them, ending slavery was the end of the world. It, like, the, it, and, and, and they were willing to, it, that was so scary. They were, white people were willing to kill other white people for it. It was the idea that their way, they our way of life is going to be terminated if these people are free. That's the level of change in thinking we need to do as a complete society. Right. Because that is what it was. And it's a hard thing. Like, I, I mean, obviously, I don't agree, but I, I, under, I, I understand. You've been living this way your whole life. Your way of life is the ownership of humans. And that's going to get taken away from you. They don't know how to live. I mean, I read one um, um, account of an um, enslaver uh, who had a heart attack and died after they found out about the Emancipation Proclamation. Just had a heart attack and died. And like that is the level of of sort of reckoning that we all have to do as a country. But it's hard because it's the end of your way of life. So if we said, like, imagine, I just keep thinking, like, imagine in America, if if some liberal uh, president or 
politician said, you know what? We're getting rid of uh, private universities. There's no more Yale. There's no more Harvard. It's all going to be the same thing. You can get a four-year degree at a community college or something like that. Even liberals would lose their mind. Liberals would be like, no, <laughs> that that is the, our pathway. Yeah, especially liberals. But it, but that that kind of proclamation would match their actual rhetoric and politics. So, but that, but having uh, um, the gatekeeping is their way of life. So, how do we live with that? That's the reason why it's really hard to reform the police. And that's why every and everybody asks the same stupid question. Well, what do you do when someone's going to rob you, or when someone right. does that? Like, well, if you've been a victim of a crime. The, the 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 criminal doesn't say well let me give you you know like 30 seconds to call the police so they can solve this no they commit the crime and they leave <laughs> so like the policing happens afterwards so it's like it's rare that you even um that police are used um in the way that we are sort of trained to think they are um so it's just but the idea of ending policing would be to end our way of life and that's scary when you look back and reflect i mean your use of history is very very important and, and significant and and i think that's what we all have to do you. you look back at the at the civil war and the uh the uh the overturning of slavery mm -hmm. you see leading up to it the development the emergence of leadership you see the emergence of conflict within the political structure to the point where there was violence in Congress, not against Congress, but in Congress, people fighting tooth and nail about slavery. Where are we going to find that today? I am so glad you you brought that up. I oh my god, thank you so much because I am fascinated with um, that exact element you're talking about, like where. Where is the gusto? Where where is the um, you know, like you're like the idea, like fight for your rights, like the exact thing that you're talking about. They they I don't think they mean it sort of like rhetorically. You no, know, it's like, no, nah, I'm going to punch you in the face because you want to enslave people. Like that's not we can't have a polite conversation about that. We can't have a congressional debate about that. We we're we're gonna we we have to fight. And um in that Mother Jones piece, um, one of the most fascinating things that I read um, about that uh, the Mississippi plan in 1875 was the way um, that committee talked about white supremacy in, in contrast to what the January 6th committee said about it. Is this the committee of 10? That's not the educational committee of 10. This is the no, no. This is so in eighteen um, seventy-five. There five, was this um, coup that happened in Mississippi, right. and it, it was essentially Democrats overthrowing the Republican government in Mississippi. Um, and it, it, what they did, there were these riots, the um, Clinton and Vicksburg riots. That kind of led up to the election, but basically um, there were these paramilitary sort of organizations that acted as the, the, the military arm of the Democratic Party, and they went around and um, they, they they literally took uh, Republic black black and white Republicans 
from their homes. They murdered them. Um, they made politicians switch parties. They um, threatened them if they if they didn't. They uh, they changed. Um, uh, oh, I they, they, they changed ballots. And so um, news of this gets out. And Congress says we need to establish a committee to investigate all this. And so there's, you know, all these hearings, this huge investigation. And um, the report that came out um, said, basically said, uh, so <laughs> there are Democrats who are saying that um, there was a spending problem in government, and that's why they had to riot. First of all, that's not true. And if there was a spending problem, you don't get to go murder people. You don't get to go. Um, you don't get to go and uh, execute a, a coup. It's the same thing with January 6th. Even if there was voter fraud, you don't get to storm the Capitol and to say, I'm going to shoot you with your own gun or whatever. Like, you, you don't get to do that. And um, that the, the committee in 1875 um, was very explicit. And one of, the, one, of the la one of the things that they wrote was, look, what happened is that there are a large swath of people who cannot stand Black people and can't stand their white allies. And these are people who own property, like the January 6th people, who were accustomed to a certain way of life, who couldn't stand um, seeing that changed. And if we don't do something, they're going to continue to use force to preserve their power. And that kind of language does not exist in the January 6th report that that you just don't you don't you don't get that kind of explicit condemnation of white supremacy as this thing that's yes it it completely obliterates black people plunders wealth their life everything and it destroys white people too and i love just how uh, to your point like how explicit they were and then there was a situation even in the the 19 uh, 20s or 30s, there was a congressman when they were debating the anti-lynching bill, a congressman uh, took pictures of lynched bodies, horrific, grotesque pictures, and put them, they hung them in the halls of Congress and said, there's still no vote on this bill. We don't get that. Like, there's no way anyone in Congress would have pictures in the chamber of, of, of all of, of Americans shot to death by police or children killed in by gun violence in the school and said we still haven't had gun reform we still haven't had police reform that we just don't it's it's almost like um you know one of my one of the the writers that made me want to write is uh christopher hitchens and i was like i don't i've never i don't agree with everything he you know all his stances but i really admire his courage and we don't have that kind of courage um, as a society, really, anymore, especially in public. And I have such a longing for that, you know, just <laughs> somebody, you know, like somebody tell every teacher, every kid in America, stop going to school. We're protesting. Nobody's going to school. We're going to get, we're going to actually take, it's not a one day walkout. We're literally not going to school until you guys do something about gun laws. I don't care what it's going to cost. We're going to figure out to support each other in our small communities, but we're not going to take this anymore. And we just, we don't have that kind of 
politic anymore. Right. And so, yeah. To your point, you, know, yeah, I, your I, point, I, I you know, you, you look right. at uh, Brazil, to your point, uh, right. not, not a thousand, but literally tens of thousands of people attack Brazilia. I mean, they have their white, they, they were organized, much more so than this group was. Mm. What's Lula's response? He uses it as an opportunity. He says, look, the cops let this happen. The, the, where's the Secret Service? Where's our version of the FBI? And now he's in a position mm -hmm. where he can, he, can, he can clean that up, where he can insist that that change, and he's going to take the risk to do that. Here, nothing like that happened. Nothing like that happened. Right. They're just trying to make political, exactly. some political advantage out of it. Exactly. Yeah, back to Chris Christopher Hitchens. Anybody that can bitch slap Mother Teresa is like and get away. With <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, you got yeah, to Bush and support Bush's wars too. Yeah. Well, he's a little bit off. Yeah. Um, he's a little bit off. Off. He's, okay, he's a little, a little bit. On a lot, of, lot bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he definitely you know, was wrong about the war. Yeah. You're you're you're, a, you're an educator. You taught. Did you teach high, mm -hmm. teach high school? Or what? When I was a dean, I was a dean of I was a, a dean of students, basically a vice principal at a high school. Um, I taught middle school, so sixth grade uh, in California. Um, I was a, a middle school lead in India, and uh, I've done some consulting around the uh, uh, in some in some countries a little bit. Uh, the reason I ask that is that I'm, you know, I'm I'm not a super bright guy, but I'm fairly, I, I think I'm fairly well informed, and I I didn't know about the lost cause. Remember when the um, um, a fellow in um, New Orleans, the the um, mayor of New Orleans, was saying, "I want to take down statues of um, right Lee and so forth." That that had to be ten years ago, right? Wasn't it? Wasn't that long ago? Right. I, I had to Google think, lost. I, I had to so. Google lost cause. I didn't know what lost cause was. Holy cow! How can I go through? How can I go through college, and high school, and not know the foundation of this kind of like you were talking about the southern, where we're we're protecting mm -hmm. our way of life. You know, you're owning people. You know, uh, this isn't right. <laughs> this, is, this isn't a, a movie. Uh, the, about how right. wonderful the south is it, you're, you're owning people and you're owning for a reason right and um right and and that gets to the the other article you did which is the article on critical, uh, critical well, race well, theory and we had on yeah. the salon reporter gosh she was a great guest uh Catherine joyce on the war on public schools, and this is the war on public schools. You're talking about right. the weaponizing of public schools, and DeSantis just appointed Christopher Rufo, who, by the way, lives in the little town that I was talking about where I grew it's up. Cupper, Cupertino, right? Is it Cupertino where he's from? He's from Gig Cupertino, Harbor. Gig, Gig, Gig Harbor. Harbor. Oh, Gig Harbor, Washington. Yeah, very easy. Okay. Kids go over there and, you know... Mm -hmm. I, it is have the public schools been lost to this culture war? Is there any hope that we'll ever have education effectively transmit some of these things for change, or is it just that is just a pipe dream? Well, it's not so much that the the public schools are lost; it's just that they never really were found. <laughs> they never really uh, kind of were established. So, public school 
the the reason why we don't know and almost every, every day I'm like I find out something I didn't know and I'm just like oh my god <laughs> what happened um we we have to remember what's what are the aims of education in America like what what is the purpose of education and when you so there are a couple things I think one is that education is a money-making venture it is definitely um, anti-black built on and still is about segregation it may not be racial explicitly but it's um it's it's it ends up being racial in the end um but so the way that our structure our system was established and this is the the committee of 10 um before there was uh what you might call like a curriculum or standards if you wanted to go to college you literally did this like oral exam or something where you might have to you know perform like recite some like cicero or whatever and you you have to know um i think it was called vulgar math back then um and you had you know you recited some greek some latin and you got in like that was how you made it to columbia or um whatever the, the school is but what ended up happening was as you know population grew and education kind of became more uh uh common was you had teachers in college who were like well there's no way to know what to teach kids because every college has a different entrance exam. So in high schools, we're like, what the hell? Like, I, you know, I got to teach this kid this thing, and but this other kid this thing because they want to go uh, to wherever they want. They want to go to Yale, but this kid wants to go to Columbia. So I have to teach a different thing. So they was sort of, it was very chaotic. And so the uh, National uh, Education Association said, okay, well, we need to figure out how to create some uh, uniformity. And they said, we're gonna get um, 10 people, 10, uh, they're, they were white, 10 white men. Uh, they, I mean, they weren't called that, but they, they're the committee of 10. Um, just to figure this all out. be white and, men, yeah. Yeah, they just would happen to be all white. And um, each, each person, kind of took a lead on a different subject. So one was, you know, history, then you had uh, English, and then you had math, then you had um, uh, uh, agriculture, and uh, I forget the other, um, what the other subjects were, but what they, what those 10 guys did, they got 10 additional people. And what ended up happening was they created this um, list of questions. I think there were 10, actually, 10 questions. And um, it was like, what um, is important content in your subject area and how might you split it up? How long uh, should each kid spend studying these things? And so each uh, committee took some time and they talked and uh, figured out what the, the answer to the 10 questions. Well, the answer, that work right there actually formed the basis of our educational system um and it's pretty much the same and that was in 1892 or 1896 or something like that and so those questions it's not about there was there wasn't anything regarding um, justice there wasn't anything regarding um uh any sort of we need to uh 
teach, we need to read diverse authors or anything like that. It wasn't about inclusion. Those questions had nothing to do with the creating the structure of our educational system. It, it wasn't as if, you know, one of the things for history certainly wasn't kids need to learn the truth about the Civil War. That wasn't, that wasn't it. Part of the reason why is because some of these men were from the South, were Democrats. Um, one of them, actually, who served on the Committee for History, um, ended up uh, hosting uh, members of the KKK to screen a film during his presidency called uh, Birth of a Nation. Yeah. Be Woodrow Wilson, wouldn't it? Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, we we so, had, we had your friend on uh, uh, American Midnight. He works at Mother Jones, doesn't he? Adam Hoshield. Uh, who, you know, you know what the funny thing is. I actually have never. I, I haven't. I've met one person from Mother Jones. Two people. Two people. <laughs> that's it. I haven't met. So the people. It's so funny because. Is that the <laughs> I thought you all around the water cooler together and pandemic. And, it's a pandemic. No, no. You, so just so, for for writers and just so people kind of know in general, um, I <laughs> so I started out as a freelance. That article about the uh, Juneteenth, I was I pitched that article after I finished my book, I was frustrated and I didn't know what to do. So I figured, okay, well, if I can kind of build a name for myself in nonfiction, people might buy my book when it comes out because the book is fiction. Right. Um, and so I was so frustrated, I couldn't get published. And then um, this wonderful editor at um, The Nation um, accepted that pitch. And then after that, I just had this other idea for Mother Jones and an editor was just kind enough to accept it. And then we kind of built a, a relationship. And the same thing happened with The New Republic. I just pitched an article and then um, it kind of happened like that. And so I actually, I met um, an editor for Mother Jones once, uh, I think maybe a year or so ago. We just like went and, you know, had a beer somewhere and caught up. And then I did meet um, the editor-in-chief. Oh, my God. She's so, she's so wonderful, uh, Clara Jeffrey. Um, we we actually had, um, we sat down and had coffee and um, like breakfast one time. But other than that, I actually have not met any editor or any other colleague in person. Well, that just is that blows my mind. I would think you'd be doing <laughs> office polls and doing, you know, the you know the sweet sixteen pools and all that stuff. That's not the way it is, huh? Well, that's good. No, not at all. Not not at all. I think people kind of assume, you know, like I'm in this this room, or like we're, you know, there's a bunch of us and we're trading ideas. No, no, no. Just just so people know, uh, the process is. I'll normally read something and then I'll kind of have an idea about how it might connect to something that we're experiencing now or might be a part of some larger question. And then I have to um, pitch it. I, well, I, for transparency, for writers, um, I don't have to pitch anymore as much as I did, but there was certainly a time in my life I was pitching and getting rejected all of the time. Yeah. Makes you stronger. Makes you stronger, Anthony. That's Anthony. That's you are. Uh, you are. It has just been so much fun reading. Uh, reading all of your works. You're a great writer. Mm -hmm. And gosh, you're just. Thank you. 
you know, you're, 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 you have such a good spin on things. That's just what, just what I, I like to have a, a common topic, uh, you know, like the school boards and critical race theory and you doing a good article saying, well, they've always been a tool of white supremacy. Like, <laughs> You know, smell right. the roses, man. I mean, you know, don't you know? Right. And and it's it, you just have a good, good, unique view on things. And I I can hardly wait to read your novel uh, when that's done. You don't want to send you. you can send me a copy. I'll proof it for you and give you some ideas. If you, <laughs> I don't. I'm just. I kidding. mean, actually, I, I'm I, actually I, I might <laughs> I might need that. I mean, I do. I I have to say just for. Um, if there's anybody who is freelancing or struggled the way I did and you're, you're trying to like figure it out, you know, like writing is such a team effort and I am very, very lucky to have had some incredible editors and, you know, like it's, it's always hard when you're starting out, but you really just need like one person to believe in you. And when you get that one person, just ask them every silly question you have about everything right. um yeah i'm i'm very i'm very very lucky i appreciate you know your kind words and my editors if if, if only you saw you know my first draft of things <laughs> uh, you know my, my editors are, are very kind so, so thank you yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a team effort any <laughs> final thoughts greg no, I enjoyed it very much. It was a good conversation. Uh, uh, really stirred some things up, and uh, thank you for that. Thank you for for yeah. for being on our show. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It it was actually it was a pleasure. I had a, I had such a good good time. Um, yeah. We'll have to do this again. Good, good, good. Well, thank you. Thank you.